professor at NGH, where he holds a, quite a number of titles representing the broad spectrum of his responsibilities around the Chinese research and Chinese education. Um, and uh, really, it's uh, an honor to have Dr. Chen join us today to speak. Um, to do my due diligence on the paperwork, um, to remind people that you must attend 80% of the program to receive your CME or other credit. Um, and then Dr. Gandhi has grant support from Gilead, Merck, and BHL. Uh, speakers are all validated by independent peer review by the Guys of Faculty and it's determined to be free of commercial bias, all potential conflicts will be resolved. And the planning committee members for this program afford no financial interest or relationship with any commercial entity or any conflict of interest regarding this activity, and nobody refused to disclose. Um, that's a new one. I don't remember having to say no one refused to disclose before. Yeah. <laughs> that was an option. <laughs> Uh, and then uh, finally, the CME code is I58S on the board. And with that, we will turn it back to Dr. Mendez. Great, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be back. Um, are people able to hear me in the back? Thumbs up. So, what I'm going to do in the next 50 minutes or so is to go through a number of clinical controversies in the area of when, the, when and what to start. These are the ones I'll be going on, going through. And I hope there'll be time, I expect there'll be time for the comments and questions. So, I'll talk about should all HIV-infected patients be treated, including elite controllers? Should HIV-infected patients initiate ART on the day of diagnosis? Should all newly diagnosed HIV-infected patients be started on an integrase inhibitor-based regimen? Uh, should TAP replace TDF for all patients? How should an ART regimen be chosen in patients with particular comorbidities or uh, conditions? And what regimen should you choose for a patient who can't take a back of ear TDF or TAP? So, controversy number one, should all HIV-positive patients be treated? This is, these are the results of a study that you're familiar with, the START study. In the START study, over 4,600 patients were randomized to either start immediate ART or deferred ART. Deferred ART, uh, they waited until the CD4 cap fell below 350 or a person developed an AIDS-related illness. The primary endpoint was a composite of a serious AIDS-related illness, a serious non-AIDS-related event of death. In May of 2015, about uh, a little over 18 months ago, the DSMB recommended offering ART treatment to all. So the study continues, but it's been unblinded, and the deferred group has been um, offered treatment. I put up some of the key numbers in part because it'll inform us when we talk about um, what we know about treating elite controllers. Median baseline CD4 count was 651. The deferred group, the CD4 count fell to about 408, so not particularly low. And the median HIV RNA was 13,000, and you can see that the viral loads were basically between 3,000 and 43,000, so not really the elite controller population, more typical of what uh, we all see in, in clinic. These are the results. The number of um, uh, serious events went down substantially, 57% in the deferred group. The number of age-related events is in the middle there, went down substantially, almost 74%, and the number of non-age-related events also went down. What were the age-related events? It was really TB, capture sarcoma, and lymphoma, all were less frequent. In the um, non-age-related events, they included a number of age-related and non-age-related cancers. And interestingly, those participants who got immediate ART had a lower rate of cancer than those who got deferred ART. There's been a subsequent presentation that looked at infection-related cancers, things like HPV and um, hepatitis-related cancers. Those are actually substantially decreased by early ART, the non-infection-related cancers are less affected. In a recent presentation um, this past summer, uh, the greatest benefit in the START trial were among those over age 50, those with a viral load of over 50,000, those who had a CD4 to CD8 ratio of less than 0.5 or a frame against score of greater than 10%. So um, the US guidelines have recommended ART for all for some years, actually since 2012. <coughs> the evidence on which this was based uh, <coughs> randomized control data a strong uh, recommendation. And more importantly, I think the WHO adopted a treat-all uh, approach um, uh, last uh, September 2015. Okay, so uh, I'm going to ask you uh, for the first case scenario, um, and I guess you're both by raising your hands. So how would you um, approach this type of person? A 55-year-old man with hypertension, diabetes, and HIV, CD4 count of 500, 
HVRNA essentially 50 copies per mil, and it's been uh, right around 50 copies per mil, per mil for, for several years. Would you treat such a patient, yes? Or would you say no? Yes and no. Fair enough, okay. Yes and no. So there is no, um, as, as uh, you know, there's no uh, definitive answer to this. I'll tell you my perspective. So here are some reasons not to start ART and, and so-called HIV controllers, or if the viral load is consistently below 50 elite controllers. That's probably about 0.3% of people with HIV, so this is not very common. So the reasons to not start ART, drug toxicities is one. Obviously, our drugs uh, have fewer and fewer toxicities, but they're not totally benign. There is a, a risk of drug resistance if the patient is not adherent. Cost of ARVs, and then no proof that ART um, prevents complications. Here are some reasons I would say that you should consider starting um, ART and elite controllers, but these are all theoretic. So these are the considerations. We know that elite controllers, if you look at their viral loads using an ultra-sensitive assay, an ultra-ultra-sensitive assay, they tend to have uh, viral loads that are higher than people on ART. So there is some viral replication going on. And they also have immune activation and, and inflammation that's higher than people on ART. There are some data that elite controllers have higher rates of subclinical atherosclerosis um, that may be linked to the inflammation. There are some data that elite controllers are hospitalized at a higher rate because of cardiovascular disease. And we know that some, it's not a good name, elite progressors, these are elite controllers with <coughs> CD4 count drop. Some patients with elite control will have a drop in their CD4 count and a low CD4 to CD8 ratio. And there are some data that treating elite controllers increases their CD4 count, decreases the CD, uh, increases the CD4 to CD8 ratio, and decreases T cell activation. One thing I don't have on this slide is um, some people worry that if you treat an elite controller with ART and then some, they subsequently stop the ART, well, they suddenly lose the elite control, well, they become non-controllers. And that doesn't seem to be the case. There's not a, a ton of data, but the data that we have suggests that uh, if you treat and then stop, it's not that they um, lose their immune control. So what, should all elite controllers be treated? I think there's no definitive answer. I'll, uh, what I tell patients is the following. Some elite controllers really are very, very quiet. They have an extremely high CD4 count. If you do an ultra-ultra-sensitive viral load, it's extremely low. And there are some data in this um, uh, plot here showing that they have different transcriptional profiles than active elite controllers. So there are a group of people who are very classic, but some elite controllers, and some of the ones I've seen, have a more active phenotype. Their CD4 counts uh, dwindle over time. They often have elevated CD8 counts, because they're essentially trying to fight off the HIV with their immune system. And they often have increased CD4 to CD8 ratios. If you do a CRP, that's often elevated, and intermittently, their viral load will peak up above 50 because they have this ongoing replication. So I do end up recommending treatment to the latter group, the kind of active elite controllers, acknowledging that it's all based on, on the theoretic uh, considerations that I mentioned before. And we need more data on, on those so-called triacid elite controllers. Um, so that's that's my current perspective. I'm happy to, to talk about it as we, as we get to the end of the talk. So second um, case scenario to consider. This is uh, a person I saw um, about two weeks ago. He's 29. He undergoes HIV testing at a sexually transmitted infection clinic. His rapid test is positive, and his HIV antigen antibody test is positive. Um, a, a, confir a confirmatory um, uh, a second test is pending. His HIV RNA genotype, CD4 count, UN granny, everything is pending. It's all been sent. Would you start this person on ART the day he got referred to us the same day he had the first set of tests. Would you, who, who would start ART same day? If I could. If you could, okay, that's, that's a big qualification, but if you could. Most of us don't, because um, most of us are used to uh, doing a, a little bit of preparatory work before we start ART. So let me, can I make um, a quick comment about yeah, that before you show your next slide? Please do. There are going to be regional differences in this. Yeah. It's harder maybe in downtown Newark to yeah. get people to come for their second visit than yeah. it is here. Yeah. So to generalize the data I think is stressful. Is is stressful. It's stressful. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Fair enough. And actually the real answer probably should be it depends. Right? I think that's, <laughs> that's what right. I think that's what you're saying. So I would, I would acknowledge that. And the main reason I put up this case one is I was thinking about it. I did not start AMT in the same day in that particular patient for the reasons that I'm hearing, which is there's a couple of things you've got to do to, to get that to go. To go. But, um, but I wanted to show these data that you might be aware of, but I wanted to show, you know, just to bring us all up to speed on what people are doing. So should patients be started on ART on the day of diagnosis? So 
the kind of the thought process behind this, as we know, delays in initiating therapy may lead to clinical progression, may lead to disengagement with care and suboptimal outcomes. So the question is, if you start ART essentially as soon as you diagnose someone, does that improve outcomes? So these are the three settings where it's been studied, and obviously I'm not you know, completely the same as where I work or where you work, but nevertheless, these are the data. So San Francisco, uh, South Africa, and Haiti. And so all three studies show some support for early initiation, same-day initiation of therapy. So these are the San Francisco data. This is not a randomized trial. Um, the Haiti trial is randomized, this is not. 86 patients who got sent to San Francisco General Hospital, now called Zuckerberg General Hospital, I'm told. Uh, with, uh, that's true. Uh, with, uh, with recent infection. Uh, so these were people who had been infected for less than six months or had a CD4 count less than 200. So again, kind of a, a different group. 39 of them were in the so-called rapid group. They had geared up, essentially, to start ART, dolutegravir plus TDF-FTC usually, on the day of diagnosis. So that starter packs, they had kind of insurance you know, mediators, all the things that you need to really do this. And they usually gave the patients the first dose on the, on the day, on the, on the, in the clinic before they left. The baseline CD4 count was a very broad range, but the median was about 470. They compared this to the standard of care group, which is uh, ART regardless of CD4 count. Here the ART was started at a median of 21 days. That's pretty typical for when I usually start. And again, a similar median CD4 count. So on your right, is the time to viral load suppression. And I don't think these should surprise any of us. The viral load suppression was much quicker in the rapid group. They obviously got started on therapy much quicker uh, as compared to the standard of care group and in the past, the CD4 count uh, guided ART group. So 1.8 months to viral load suppression in the rapid group versus 4.3 months. And perhaps some individual benefit, this did not show that, but um, I would say probably some societal benefit in terms of public health reducing transmissibility. So that's one set of data. Young, please. The, um, in the standard of care, in the rapid, they all have dolutegravir in the standard of care that they all have That's a good question. The uh, question is, in the rapid group, did they, they all got an integrase inhibitor? We know integrase inhibitors bring down viral loads more quickly than other regimens. What was the regimens in the standard of care group? I believe they were large the integrase inhibitors, but I don't know precisely for the exact same number. So that, that's another consideration. Was there any information that came out from this study as to the retention of these individuals? And this is a major problem. Totally agree. Totally agree. So not so much in this study. I'll show you in a, in a minute um, a randomized study in a different country, um, but where they focus on retention. So this is a study done by uh, one of our former fellows, Serena Kernan, who works in Haiti. Uh, ART naive adults, CD4 count less than 500, no TB. So the group was what well, typically we all do. Uh, so week three of, of um, after diagnosis, ART was initiated with a number of visits before and after. The same day group, and so this one is randomized, uh, was counseling an ART initiation on the day of, of diagnosis, followed by uh, visits. So this trial was stopped early because of better outcomes in the same day group, and these are in part um, some retention and care kind of data. So on your left, initiated ART 100% in the, in the immediate group, a little, under, a little over 90% in the um, standard group. But alive and in care, higher in the um, same day group, in care with a viral load of less than 50, um, higher in the um, same day group. And interestingly, death uh, was actually lower in the same day group, 3% versus 7%. So in particular, the in care and HIV RNA less than 50 was also an amalgam of retention um, that they kept coming to appointments after 12 months. Um, so these are, are the, the data. I, I would acknowledge and I agree that um, this is not completely generalizable and I haven't yet um, adopted it in my own practice. I think what it tells me is, you know, our, our usual approach of waiting for some time uh, to try to enhance someone in medicine might actually, uh, in some instances, be counterproductive. It depends on kind of where they are in terms of readiness to take meds. But sometimes um, uh, prescribing and, and um, acknowledging people's desire to, to take control of their health actually might give you better health outcomes. And so it depends on the particular person. So whoever said it depends, I think probably is right. But I think these are interesting data. It's pushing us earlier and earlier as the starting therapy. Okay. So should all newly diagnosed patients be started on an integrase inhibitor? 
So um, just as a reminder, the um, classes, the uh, parts of the virus life cycle were different than its work. Um, fusion inhibitors work on virus entry, as do CCR5 antagonists. RT inhibitors, uh, nucleoside and non-nucleoside RT inhibitors prevent um, reverse transcription from RNA into DNA. Integrase inhibitors, what we're going to be talking about next, uh, prevent um, integration of DNA into the host genome. And then protease inhibitors, which we'll talk about as well, um, prevent um, the translated polyprotein from being cleaved into mature viral um, um, proteins and prevent kind of the final step of budding and maturation. It was just prior to the final step of budding and maturation. Discuss, I've been talking for 36 minutes. I don't think I've been talking for 36 minutes, so someone keep me on time. So these are the um, 25 options, more than 25 options available for ART in 2017, including six um, single pill uh, regimens, once daily single pill regimens. So how does one go around, uh, go about kind of choosing between all these different these possibilities? Okay, so two sets of guidelines I'll draw your attention to. Both came out actually the same week, uh, this past July. One is from the International Antiviral Society. They renamed themselves the International, from International AIDS Society. It's the International Antiviral Society USA. They actually recommend just four regimens for initial therapy, all of which are integrase inhibitor-based. So this is a, a change in, and a distinction from the DHHS guidelines. All four of them are shown here. Dalutegavir back for 3TC is a single pill combination. Dalutegavir plus TAF FTC, uh, L-bitegavir, TAF FTC, and Raltegavir TAF FTC. You'll, you'll notice all of them are also including TAF rather than TDF. This particular guideline does say that if uh, TAF is not available, uh, TDF remains an effective and well-tolerated uh, option generally. And they also acknowledge that some clinicians may prefer to continue using TDF until they have broader experience with TAF. And we'll, we'll certainly talk about the TAF versus TDF um, considerations. Uh, the DHHS guidelines came out the same week, same for uh, integrase inhibitor-based regimens. The DHHS guidelines retained either TDF or TAF as the nucleoside backbone, and they include one uh, protease inhibitor-based regimen, boosted Dermunavir, plus either TDF-FTC or TAF-FTC. <clears throat> so I will say a number of randomized trials do indicate that integrase inhibitor-based regimens are optimal for most patients with newly diagnosed HIV. I'll, I'll talk about a few exceptions, but for most patients. So this is a study you're probably familiar with, a single study. This was the first time and the Favrins-based regimen was beaten by comparators. So in this study, Dalvitegavir plus Abacavir 3TC was uh, compared head-to-head -to, -head to the Favrins TDF-FTC. You can see in the graphic that a higher proportion of those patients who were on the Dalvitegavir um, group had viral load suppression at week 48, and then this continued out to week 96. There were, however, more discontinuations in the Favrins group, and that in part accounted for some of this difference. But nevertheless, um, Dalutegavir versus Abavis, acknowledging some differences in the nucleoside, seem to be better. What about integrase inhibitors versus protease inhibitors? There are a number of studies now uh, that really um, have looked at this. ACCD257 correctly compared Raltegavir to either boosted Atazanavir or boosted Darunavir, and showed that Raltegavir was superior to the protease inhibitors, largely, again, based on tolerability. In the Flamingo study, uh, Dalutegavir compared head-to-head -to, -head to boosted Darunavir, this was open label, uh, also superior uh, to boosted Darunavir. In a women-only study, because as we know, most clinical trials are underrepresented, have, uh, women are underrepresented, the WAVE study compared L-bitegavir cobacistat directly to boosted Atazanavir, and the integrase inhibitor was superior. And then most recently, the ARIA study, another uh, women-only study that was presented this past summer, Dalutegavir abacavir 3TC is a single pill uh, <coughs> to boosted atazanavir TDF-FTC in women. Perhaps a little hard to see, but also about a 10% um, uh, superiority to the um, Dalutegavir group uh, as compared to boosted atazanavir. Which integrase inhibitor should you use? Um, there actually aren't that many comparative trials looking at integrase inhibitors here are the ones that I'm aware of. So L-bitegavir has been compared head-to-head to, -head to raltegavir only in treatment-experienced patients. And in, um, in treatment-experienced patients, both drugs are comparable. Dalutegavir actually has been um, competing head-to-head -head against raltegavir. In treatment-naive, in the SPRING-2 study, both drugs were comparable. There was not a lot of um, difference between the two. 
In the Salem study, which is a treatment experience population, so people who had failed prior regimens, their dolutegravir outperformed uh, raltegravir. <coughs> Can so I ask we, a quick question? Yeah, about of course. Maybe about to get to it. Yeah. I, I think raltegravir is a little better tolerated. So has there been any progress with once-daily raltegravir? Yes, thank you. Um, I will mention um, the question has to do with once-daily raltegravir, and I'm going to get to that, um, I think, one or two slides. Okay. So these are some of the considerations for choosing between integrase inhibitors. Raltegravir has the longest track record, for sure. It has the fewest uh, drug interactions. Some of the cons, it is twice-daily. Uh, but there is a once-daily formulation that is coming. Uh, there's a study I'm going to show you called Onceper, and it is not yet, and it is not um, yet, and I don't believe it will be immediately co-formulated as part of the single flow regimen. Those are the two cons. L-vitegravir-cobi, it is available in a number of single flow uh, combination regimens with TDF-FPC and TAF-FPC. Uh, main cons, it's got the most drug interactions. The cobacistat is essentially a CYP3A4 um, blocker, so it. it um, it has drug interactions <coughs> drugs, and there's a food requirement. Dolutegravir is available as a single pill uh, regimen with a Bactivir 3TC. I think it does have the highest genetic barrier to resistance based on the data we have, which is a, definitely a pro. Some of the cons, it's not co-formulated with tenofovir, so if you want, wanted to use tenofovir, you do have to give two pills. Um, the um, Bactivir 3TC Dolutegravir is a somewhat larger pill size than some other single pill combination. And there's an uh, a important drug interaction with metformin, essentially a doubling uh, of the metformin levels if you give dolutegravir with it. So this is the study that speaks to the once-daily raltegravir. It's called Onceamerc. It was presented this past summer. And I'm told that this formulation of once-daily raltegravir is now in front of the FDA. So 100, uh, 800 patients who were randomized to either standard raltegravir, what we give right now, which is 400 BID, or raltegravir 1,200 milligrams once a day, given as two 600 milligram pills. That's how it was um, given, and, and both with TDF-FTC. Probably hard to see, but you don't need to be up close to see. There's no difference in viral load suppression between the once-daily raltegravir and the um, standard twice-daily raltegravir. So it's uh, really no difference at all. Q-day was non-inferior to DID. And, um, it is in front of the FDA, it's in front of the European um, regulatory, regulatory, uh, regulatory folks, and so we'll see. Um, I think where its niche will be is, um, you were saying it is better tolerated, I agree with you, there are some people who don't tolerate dolutegravir that this might be a good option for. Or if I had a patient, say, on metformin, where, um, especially if they're on a high dose of metformin, um, you can get dolutegravir with low doses of metformin, but not moderate or high doses of metformin. Was the, was the 1,200 daily, um as well tolerated? The safety or the tolerability does seem to be good. Yeah. Um, did anything come out of the WAVE study that would indicate a differential response between men and women in the treatment protocol? So the question is in the WAVE study, let me go back to that. Was there anything um, that came out of it that would explain why there was a difference between men and women? Is that or that women should be treated differently from men? You know, but let me say this, and there is a previous study of Albitegravir-Cobi versus Bustadatis-Enver um, that was a randomized study in men and women, and that showed that they were very comparable, Albitegravir-Cobi and, 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 um, and Bustadatis-Enver. Um, there were more, you know, um, uh, jaundice toxicities, the things you'd expect with um, Adizanivir, but when you looked at it in men and women, they were very comparable. Um, that study um, mostly had men. Uh, I can't tell you the precise numbers. I think it's about 80% men, 20% women. So this is this <clears throat> women's only study did show that uh, albitegravir was superior to boosted adizanivir. Maybe arguing that in women um, this is a, a better choice. But that's the data. Yeah, it's certainly an understudied area. Yeah, it is an understudied area. And I, I'm glad that people are doing studies where they're specifically focused. Okay, so what are some limitations of integrase inhibitors? Um, well, first, cations do affect integrase inhibitor absorption, so you do need to study calcium. So that's uh, calcium, that's magnesium, that's iron. So basically, any divalent or, or multivalent cation. There are these somewhat idiosyncratic um, uh, adverse events, rhabdomyolysis with raltegravir. There are some data that insomnia is more frequent with dolutegravir, although not in, in randomized trials, but in uh, observational trials. <coughs> and 
Right now, the only integrase inhibitor single coat regimen that has tenofovir is with l copy and that has more drug interactions. There is a new unboosted integrase inhibitor that's uh, far along in clinical trials. It has a number, and it goes by the name of Bigtegravir, and it's being developed for use in its half FTC containing single coat regimen. So that would be a non-boosted um, integrase inhibitor with, uh, with a tenofovir containing regimen, what we don't have right now. So what are some scenarios where I, I may not choose an integrase inhibitor? There are still some instances, and actually one of the reasons the DHHS left boosted nirunavir on the first-line regimens is this scenario here. In a patient with very uncertain adherence, or in whom you need to start ART very, very quickly, say acute HIV before you have a resistance test, or cystic pneumonia in the hospital right now who doesn't have a resistance test back, there we know that boosted uh, protease inhibitors have a very high genetic barrier to resistance, and it might be a good choice. <clears throat> I will say Dolgitegra, in many people's mind, is now kind of um, rate, um, ranking up there, which boosted PIs we don't have as much experience, but the experience we have does support that you might choose Dolgitegra in this scenario as well. For example, in the acute HIV section of the DHHS guidelines, they say you can either use boosted PIs, Drunavir, or Dolgitegra if you don't have your resistance test back yet. So it, it has kind of made it there. Another scenario where I might choose a non-integrase inhibitor-based regimen is in a person with a very low uh, HIV RNA, less than 100,000, and a high CD4 count, over, um, uh, over 200. So in this scenario, we'll pivot either with TDF-FTC or TAF-FTC. It's a small pill, single pill a day. It's well-tolerated. And there are data uh, showing that it's superior to a Favarin's TDF-FTC, uh, where pivoting is, if the bar load is less than 100,000. I already alluded to the fact you shouldn't use ropivirine if the bar load is over 100,000 or the CD4 count is less than 200. And there's a food requirement you need to give it with 390 calories of food and avoid something that affects your acids. So proton inhibitors, H2 blockers, you have to be very cautious to avoid altogether. But for some patients, this is another alternative if, if, um, if for whatever reason they don't tolerate an integrase inhibitor or if you want an alternative to one. And then the last scenario where I sometimes consider a non-integrase inhibitor therapy, although this also there's some nuances. Someone who has TB on, a, on rifampin for their TB, there are still worldwide by far the most data with efavirenz, TDF-FTC. Rifampin has less effects on efavirenz than it does on other ARVs. You can use dolutegravir, you can use raltegravir, but you have to get higher doses. So that might be another a scenario where I might use something other than an integrase inhibitor. Okay, so um, next controversy, should TAF replace TDF for all patients? Um, let me just pause and make sure before I go on that there aren't any other uh, comments. I, I think we'll have time at the end for, for comments as well, so save, save them up if you, or ask me after this next session. Okay, so um, tenofovir alafenamide or TAF, um, I think is well known to you, it's a prodrug of tenofovir, it concentrates in cells, and then is converted to the, to the active drug tenofovir. Uh, because it concentrates in cells, TAF is given at a much lower dose than TDF, the prior formulation, so that there's 90% lower plasma at tenofovir levels compared to TDF. And since some of the toxicities at tenofovir, like bone and kidney, seem to be related to plasma levels, there, there was hope, and there's uh, some data, there are data, suggesting that the, these toxicities are less. So in a large trial, over 1,700 patients, Alvitegravir, Cobicistat, FTC, TAF was compared to the same three drugs plus TDF. 1,700 patients randomized to either the TAF or the TDF containing four drug regimens. So these are data you've probably seen before, and I'm going to show you an update um, in the next slide. So at week 48, um, you can see in the graphic, essentially both arms biologically were the same, 90%, 92% in the TAF arm and in the TDF arm, so no difference. TAF was associated with a smaller decrease in estimated GFR than TDF. There was also less proteinuria in the TAF group. There was a smaller decrease in bone mineral density. And when we talk about customizing ART, we'll come back to that. There was a greater increase in cholesterol in both LDL and HDL cholesterol and in triglycerides. The uh, thinking here is that tenofovir itself actually reduces um, lipid levels. We know that if you switch from a back beer it's enough here, your lipid levels go down. The total cholesterol to HDL ratio was not different. But so the thinking here is that um, TDF, because there's more tenofovir, lower lipids more, all lipids more than did TAF. 
So the LBI take over COVID at half FTC was approved for patients with creatinine clearance down to 30. These are the more updated data um, from uh, September of this past year. So at 144 weeks, same, same study. TAP was superior to TDF in terms of virologic suppression, a slight but um, statistically significant difference, 84 versus 80%. And there were more renal events leading to discontinuation, 12 versus zero in the uh, TDF group. In addition to treatment-naive studies, there have been a lot of switch studies. And I put all of the switch studies on one slide and because they all give very, very similar results. So the first switch study is TDF-FTC, switching to TAF-FTC, randomized to either continue TDF or switch to TAF, of course, with the third drug. The second study was switching uh, rocuvirate TDF-FTC to the same with TAF instead of the TDF. And then the last study was switching Efavirin's TDF-FTC to Rocuvirin's TAF-FTC. These, these studies were all either presented or updated uh, this past um, September in, in Glasgow. Result of all three essentially maintain virologic suppression when you switch to TAF. It improves the estimated GFR and proteinuria when you switch to TAF. There was improved bone renal density, which I'll show you. And again, uh, just as in the treatment naive study, um, increased lipids with a stable total cholesterol and HDL. So these are the formulations that you know of. Um, uh, Albitegavir Kobe FTC TAF was approved last November. Based on the study I showed you, initial therapy as well as some switch studies, Rupivirine FTC TAF was uh, approved last March. Based on bioequivalence as well as the switch study that I was on the last slide, and then FTC TAF was approved in April of last year based, based on that switch study that I showed you before. So these latter two are not based on initial therapy; they're based on you know, uh, for, they're not based on treatment naive studies. There is a uh, boosted darunavir. Kobe FTC TAF, the first single pill combination with a protease inhibitor that's in phase three studies. Okay, so should TAF replace TDF? Some reasons to, to choose TAF. It is as virologically as effective as, as TAF is as virologically effective as, as TDF. Compared with TDF, TAF has more favorable effects on renal and bone markers. Um, and this, I think, is particularly important in patients who already have renal or bone disease or, at high, or, or who are at high risk for these complications. And right now, the cost of TAF and TDF-containing regimens are, are similar. Reasons to choose TDF. Compared with TAF, there are more and longer-term data with TDF, particularly in studies of treatment-naive patients. There are more favorable lipid effects, although the total cholesterol to HDL ratio is the same. The renal and bone marker advantages of TAF are not yet known to translate into better um, hard clinical outcomes. And the last of these is an important consideration. TDF regimens are likely to become cheaper when TAF, uh, than TAF when TDF goes generic, and that's uh, supposed to be sometime this year. Um, a cost-effectiveness group at Mass General did this study. Um, this is a cost-effectiveness study, and they asked the question, how much more should society be willing to pay for TAF over TDF in exchange for its improved toxicity profile, those renal and bone issues? And they um, put this into their cost-effectiveness model, and they found that current conditions warrant an annual, annual premium, that is, TAF should cost about $1,000 more over the average wholesale price of TDF. But once generic TDF um, BTC becomes accessible at a lower cost, if you're going to just, just base it on cost-effectiveness, that should drive down the uh, price of TAF so that that premium stays about the same. We will see uh, if that happens. Uh, drug prices don't tend to go down. So, um, so that's, that's um, kind of some of the considerations. <clears throat> One would I definitely use TAF over TBF? I think in a patient with osteoporosis or osteopenia, you should uh, certainly use uh, TAF over TDF. In the next section, I'll, I'll um, show data arguing for that. In a patient with renal disease or evidence for possible tubular dysfunction, for example, proteinuria, and this is a growing proportion of our patients. So clearly all of our clinics are, are um, you know, the median age in my clinic is in the mid-50s, and I think that's true um, more and more around the country. When should you definitely not use TAF? In a person on a rifamycin, there are some data suggesting, although this is still being explored, that rifamycins may decrease TAF levels. So one of the patients in, um, at a hospital in town was on rifampin for his um, MRSA um, prostatic joint infection, <laughs> uh, along with, you know, uh, Cipro or something like that, and he had HIV, so they did not give that person TAF because uh, of this rifamycin uh, interaction. <clears throat> Pregnant women, uh, not enough data yet. And then clearly for PrEP, um, 
even though uh, it seems attractive to use TAF over TDF, there are not enough data at all to support using um, TAF FTC over TDF FTC. We anticipate it's going to be studied and a large uh, comparative trial, but right now would not use um, TAF over uh, TDF for prep. Okay, so here let's talk about how should uh, you choose a regimen um, based on specific conditions. This is the whole point of individualizing ART to your particular patient. So some of the pros of a vacuum free TC, it's not nephrotoxic. It's available with an unboosted integrase inhibitor, Dalmutrigger, in a single probe regimen. Some of the cons, you do have to do an HLA B5701 test to confirm they're negative. About 8% of Caucasians are B5701 positive, about 2% of African Americans. And some studies, but not all, show an um, association between the back of your and cardiac events. Advantages of TDF-FTC, you've got plenty of single pill uh, options. Uh, the uh, lipids actually go down, and clearly it's active against hepatitis B. In a hepatitis B patient, there's no doubt that you should use tdf attack. However, it does have greater nephrotoxicity than does a beer, and as compared to TAF, at least based on uh, markers. And there's a larger decline in bone mineral density than with a beer or with TAF. And then TAF, we've gone through, I think, the, the pros and cons. The pros we've talked about, uh, the cons are really just less long-term data, particularly for initial therapy. So here's how I customize ART in someone with, a kid with kidney disease. And here I would say anyone with an estimated GFR of less than 60, which is a fairly high proportion of um, uh, patients in their 50s and 60s. Here I would use a Bacavir plus 3TC separate if the, CD if the um, uh, GFR is less than 50. Or I would use TAF-FTC as long as the creatinine clearance is above 30. That's what TAF is approved down to. So clearly I would avoid TDF. I would avoid also boosted atazanivir and boosted lopinavir. Not that we use boosted lopinavir very often, but both, both of those are associated with kidney disease. In people with high cardiac risk, I tend to favor either TDF or TAF. In people with hepatitis B, there are now good data supporting either TDF-FTC or TAF-FTC. The TAF-FTC data come from a switch study uh, and from a hep B mono-infection study. In hep B mono-infection, TAF has been competed head-to-head -head against TDF and hep B mono-infection and found to be very comparable in terms of uh, hep B control. Uh, pregnancy, these are, I looked this up the other day uh, just to see what the latest is. About, um, for pregnancy, it's recommended that ACT actually fell off this year, just in the last um, uh, 12 months. Not, most of us weren't using ACT, but it has now been demoted to an alternative also in pregnant women. So back of your 3TC or a TDF FTC plus either Valtegravir uh, boosted atosanivir or boosted derivative. Now let's talk about osteoporosis. So these are uh, randomized data showing that abacavir and TAF both in separate studies cause less bone mineral density loss than does TDF. So this is that stereotypic pattern. You start ART, bone mineral density goes down. So on your left, the green is abacavir, the, the um, uh, orange is uh, TDF. So bone mineral density goes down and then it stabilizes, but it stabilizes at a lower level in the TDF group than in the evacuator group. On your right, uh, TAF versus TDF, same kind of pattern, um, but TAF goes down less than, than TDF. These data I find really interesting. So this is a switch study where in the um, orange, people stayed on TDF, and in the purple, they switched to TAF. And so what this shows is bone mineral density actually goes up by about 1.8%. So that's no fear in the higher dose of TDF was somehow keeping bone mineral density down, or at least uh, there was a homeostasis, but when you re relieve that pressure, bone mineral density goes up. It also decreased uh, PTH and decreased some serum bone, bone markers when you switched. So which should you choose between a Bacavir and a TAP for um, osteoporosis? We don't know, it's, it's not clear. So clearly I would avoid TDF, we don't yet know which causes more bone mineral density loss between a Bacavir and TAF. There are some non-comparative uh, data, but that don't really answer the question. There is a randomized trial going on comparing a Bacavir 3TC Dalgichegavir to TAF FTC with this non-boosted um, interest inhibitor, Bictegavir. So that will be interesting to see if that teases out the difference between um, bone mineral, mineral density between a Bacavir and TAF. The last point, um, uh, that I want to put up for drug um, customizing ART is the whole issue of drug interactions. So in someone who I'm about to start on hep C therapy, I usually tend to use either Valdi or Ralph because they have fewer drug interactions. 
And someone who's on and can't come off of acid-lowering therapy, I either avoid or I'm very cautious with lopribrine and atazanavir. With cations, I just remember to stagger the dosing with integrase inhibitors. And then with CYP3A4 metabolized meds, of which there are many, um, I, I avoid or I'm cautious with PIs or COBE. This is an interaction that when I first started giving this talk, I think fewer people knew, but I know, but I think now it's well known, but I want to reiterate it anyway. Injectable steroids um, of the type that our orthopedic colleagues give or other people give, their levels are increased by protease inhibitors and cobocystat. So we did a study at MGH where we just looked at all our patients who were on a protease inhibitor and who got a steroid injection, for mostly for orthopedic issues. Fully 10% developed clinical evidence, and we didn't, this was not prospective, this was just a chart review study. Clinical evidence of either pushing um, steroid excess or adrenal insufficiency or both. So um, I've gotten to the point that if I, I tell my patients if they're gonna have a steroid injection or an orthopedic procedure, I ask them to tell the surgeon to call me first, that doesn't always uh, work, or sometimes I've even switched them off of PIs if I'm worried that they're gonna get a steroid injection. Inhaled fluticasone and budesonide, um, similar uh, considerations, the levels are increased by PIs and with cobocystine. Fluticasone now over the counter is particularly lipophilic, it lasts a long time. The only one I can remember, and the only one for which I think there's good data that you can give safely with PIs and, and uh, cobocystine is beclomethasone. Folks at the NIH basically did, in normal volunteers, a bunch of port stim tests in people who were given ritonavir with beclomethasone and it looked, um, looked okay uh, to give beclomethasone to others I, I worry about. <coughs> okay, the last um, controversy, and then I think there should be 10 minutes or so for questions and, and more comments. So what regimen should you use in a patient who can't take can't take TDF and can't use abacavir? So uh, what kind of either nucleoside sparing regimens do we have or nucleoside light regimens do we have? So this would be the scenario. 50-year-old man with HIV, diabetes, hypertension, chronic renal insufficiency, with the cramping clearance below that threshold for TAP, it's, it's 20. So this is not one I think that I would use TAP in. HIV RNA is 30,000, CD4 count is, is moderate, 450, and it's B5701 positive. It doesn't happen often, but it does happen. So what kind of regimen would you give? So here I've put up four regimens. Um, so which of you would give this person, despite the creatinine clearance a little bit above 30, below 30, would you give Darunavir, Cobin, CAP-MTC? No takers. Uh, Darunavir, Ritonavir, plus Raltegavir? Okay. Dalitegavir plus 3TC? Plus everyone's going to vote for the last one for people on this one. Dalitegavir plus Raltegavir. Okay. By, um, Although only a small proportion of the popular vote actually voted. <laughs> Looks like people wanted to I was going to vote for Darunavir Ritonavir, Dalitegavir. Yeah, yeah. Uh, fair enough. I knew we were gonna, that was going to come up. And um, I'll show you the data that we have. That is an attractive regimen, but we don't have a ton of data yet on that. So let's see what, what we do have. Including something that I'll talk also about switches, because that's, although that's not relevant to this. So this is what we have for initial therapy. You're facing someone who's not on therapy. They, for whatever reason, can't take a back of their tap or TDF. What do we have in terms of data? So the first regimen is the so-called Gardel regimen. Not a popular regimen, but, but it does work. Um, boosted lopinavir plus 3TC was non-inferior to boosted lopinavir plus 2 nukes. The reason why it doesn't have a lot of currency is that it's got a high full burden and there's a lot of toxicities from the boosted lopinavir. This is the regimen that I, I would probably choose here. Uh, although <coughs> change in the future, there are the most data for boosted Darunavir plus Raptegavir. This was a moderately sized randomized trial called NEAT001 that competed that against um, boosted Darunavir plus TDF-FTC, found the nuke sparing regimen to be non-inferior. But there were two big caveats. If the CD4 count was less than 200, there the nuke sparing regimen did not do as well. And if the viral load was over 100,000, there were more failures with the nuke sparing regimen. This particular patient I set up deliberately to have a high um, CD4 count and a low viral load. So although boosted darunavir, um, dalitegavir, we all think should work, we don't have as much data with that. And then this is an attractive regimen that is going to be studied, is being studied. So dalitegavir plus 3TC in a very small but um, important trial called PADL, which had 20 patients. Single arm study, all patients suppressed with dalitegavir plus 3TC. 
There's a study that's ongoing that's fully enrolled and that's being analyzed of about 120 or 140 patients, ACTG 5353, single arm study. So these first two are single arm, with dog integrated for ETC. That uh, second study, the first of those studies didn't allow people with viral loads over 100,000. The second study, the ACTG study, allowed people with viral loads that were a bit higher. I think it went up to about 500,000 or so. The real trials, though, that will, that will get at this are, are really um, important trials that started this summer, called the Gemini trials, which is going to look at dog integrity plus 3TC in a phase 3 study versus dog integrity plus TDFFTC. This started this past July. So two versus three drugs, basically. Okay, we have a lot more data. If you have someone who's virologically suppressed and then develops toxicity to the nukes, then there's a there's a but there's several options that are supported by um, clinical trials, uh, including one that I'll show you next um, that just uh, came out and we're still waiting to see the presentation for. So, if you have to switch someone who's suppressed, boosted lopinavir plus either three TC or FTC, and the old study looks as good as continuing three drugs. Boosted abizanivir plus three TC in the salt study randomized both of these are randomized look just as good as continuing three drugs. Smallish, small study, 60 patients, boosted rutavir plus rilpivirine, that looked fine. There are a bunch of uh, regimens that are being studied, some of which are just reporting out. So boosted rutavir plus 3TC is being studied, the regimen that you like, um, which I also like, boosted rutavir plus dolgutegivir for switch, um, is being studied in the Duvalis study. There's another version of dolgutegivir 3TC that's being studied for switch. Um, the ones I showed you on the previous slide were for initial therapy, someone not yet, you know, treatment naive, as far as looking at switching. Um, the study I'll show you next that's out in press release um, that looks good is the SWORD studies, Dolly Tegavir, Rilpivirine, so switching to that. And then the last one is, I won't talk about because I'm mostly talking about what we have now, is intramuscular um, injections of cabotegavir and intramuscular injections of Rilpivirine, both of which are very long-lasting for switch, so you know, start, uh, getting someone suppressed and then switching them, and that's being studied and, and looks promising. So this, um, all I can show you is what you can't see, which is a press release that came out about, I don't know, 10 days ago or so. Um, phase three trials of switching virologically suppressed patients from a three or four drug regimen to a true drug regimen of an integrase inhibitor, dolgutegivir plus an NNRTI, rilpivirine. So this is kind of different than our, you know, this is a new sparing regimen. The primary endpoint of the SORT trials, which were large phase three trials, is the proportion of patients with um, viral loads less than 50 at week 48. And what the press release says is that um, two drug dodalitegavir was um, non-inferior to the three drug arm. They say that they will present these data at a meeting. We'll see if they present it at, at CROI, which is coming up next month. Um, but that's what we know. They go on to say that regulatory submissions for Dolly Tegavir-Rilpivirine as a single tablet is being planned for 2017. So this is for potentially for switching. Okay, so I think um, I'm pretty much on time. Um, summary, uh, should all HIV-infected patients be treated? Uh, yes. Um, I think you could also make a case for treating elite controllers. And I think you can make a case under the right circumstances for earlier and earlier initiation of ART, including on the day of diagnosis if you have all the, the ducks lined up. Should all HIV-infected patients be started on an integrase inhibitor-based regimen? I think most should. Um, there are a few scenarios that I've tried to lay out where I sometimes choose something else. Should TAF replace TDF for all patients? I think with people with bone and renal disease, um, uh, TAF is particularly advantageous. Hard to say in every patient, and I think the cost considerations will, will be coming to the fore. How should ART be chosen in patients with comorbidities? Um, I think you, as I've shown you, you customize based on the drug's effect on bone, on kidney, heart disease, on viral hepatitis, which I didn't dwell on, and on drug interactions. And then what regimen should be used in patients who cannot take TAF, TDF, or Bacter? Right now, they're relatively few for initial therapy. There are more for switching, but there are new options under study. So with that, I will stop. I ask you if you have any questions or make any comments. And I thank you for your What is your experience with Dolly Tegavir plus just the room or have you either? I didn't use it yet. I have a patient yeah. who's, um, who's had some resistance, I can't remember exactly what, who's got 
three or four consecutive bytes of 300, which makes it so I can't look for resistance and he's pill averse, so I was trying to come up with a simple once a day regimen. And I should remember what his resistance is, but he's he's now on, uh, I think he's been on a triple already. Now I think he's on Complera and something. I was just wondering about it. But perhaps it's not quite ready for prime time. Not as much data, but I think it makes all the sense that it should work. I've switched a few people who are suppressed, fully suppressed to that, and it's done well. We like to more of that. Other comments or questions? When is the I have When is this a back of your and heart disease thing going to be resolved? Ever? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think it'll ever be resolved. Because um, you know, a clinical endpoint study is, I think, prohibitively large, and I think we're going to keep getting this observational data. So. I think it's hard in someone who has had a heart disease or is at particularly high risk for heart disease, but it's hard to do with all this. A lot of the virtual calls you were mentioning utilize PRI's autonomy. Are you comfortable just extrapolating the code system? So the question is a lot of the trials use um, a retinavir with a, a PI, are you comfortable extrapolating from the system which is co-formulated with um, Runivir and Adesanivir? You know, in, in general, I am. The data for Cobacistat, the reason why um, Cobacistat Runivir got listed as an um, alternative is the most data for that in trials of a single-arm study. And there were some really subtle pharmacologic reasons that people wondered about, that it might not have the same um, uh, concentrations as boosted Runivir. That being said, I think given accumulating data, I've become more and more comfortable using this data. You know, the co-formulated proteases that you're I no longer, unless someone, if someone has had a lot of um, protease inhibitors in the past and resistance, then sometimes I get some extra profit on the treatment aid. All right, other comments or questions? You sort of alluded to insomnia with um, yeah. the dolutegravir, yeah. and uh, so as typically I'm a nurse, the nurses were picking up on people who had never spoken to anybody, people who are not hooked up on the internet, yeah. sort of coming in on dolutegravir saying I cannot sleep or yeah. I'm anxious or. Can you, is there any quantification to this? You know, that's a good question. So the question is this dolutegravir insomnia and anxiety, is there any quantification? So I'll give you two answers. One is in the randomized trials where they looked at other regimens, that kind of symptom was, was very low. It was like less than 5% in both groups, and there was no difference. There's a study out of um, Europe that gave it rates as higher as um, something like 15 to 20%, which seemed higher than most of us would think. Um, in an observational database. So um, I, I don't think it's 15 to 20%. I don't think it's zero, but I, um, I see it on occasion, but I don't see it very often. Yeah. I guess if you had someone who, who had that symptom, um, that's where you might choose um, an alternative. It depends on if they're on other drugs, you might choose Raltegravir <coughs> if they weren't on drugs that interacted, or you might choose Raltegravir if they don't mind pills. Great. Okay, thank you. My pleasure.